Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Martin Taylor is the CEO of Fishing Game New Zealand, a nonprofit organization focused on managing, maintaining, and enhancing sportfish, game birds, and their habitats. They receive no government or taxpayer money, relying solely on income from fishing and hunting license sales. In this episode of Anchored, I meet with Martin to discuss the sustainability of New Zealand's trout fisheries, the cost of doing business, and whether tourists are loving the country to death. My job is to service the New Zealand Council, which is the peak body for fishing game in New Zealand. There's 12 regions, and we organise, manage, reform... Uh, will try to reform the the 12 regions that uh, make up what is fishing game across the country. So when you say fishing game, that's primarily birds and fish, but not not game, like not deer, not tar. Uh, The the name is slightly, uh, it should be fish and game birds. So we don't do tar or deer. So essentially our, our mandate is to represent and promote trout, salmon and game birds, of which we've got a number. Who manages the big game? Uh, that's the Big Game Animal Council, and that's recently been set up. It's only, I think, about five years old. They have a, a role to, to manage uh, that for, for hunters, um, but there is a tension in New Zealand between big game being seen as a pest by some agencies and uh, those who want to hunt it. Right, so when that call was recently called off for the tar, was that just public pressure that put that off? Uh, no, that was because there was the tragedy of the people dying in the helicopter and so that was, it was postponed uh, for that period. Oh, I actually did not know that. Yeah. We just thought it was public pressure that did it. No, so 
two of the colours hopped in a chopper and, and something happened. And I, I, I think the, I mean, if you go online, you'll be able to see the, the, the cause of the crash. Oh, that's horrible. All right, well, let me bring you on track for what we're sitting down for. And it's to really talk about fish here in New Zealand. Okay. Now, I was really surprised to hear that Fishing Game is not a government organisation. No, we're a statutory body. So we're, we are covered by the Finance Act in terms of uh, what we, we're audited. And we have to be seen to ensure that we spend our money wisely. So we are a creature of statute, but we're not controlled by the government. So we have an independent function, and that carries over from the days when we were acclimatisation societies. Okay, so where do you guys get all your money from? Licence holders. So we're 100% funded by users. And in terms of government, I mean, that's great. So they don't have to put any money into managing what is a public resource. Where does that money go then? Because New Zealand's fish are not indigenous. They were introduced some time back. But where what is the money used for? It's not for hatcheries. It's not for stocking programs. Uh, no, it is. There's is some it? of it is. Not a lot. Um, we don't need a lot of stocking programs, a lot of hatcheries because we have a really good native, not native, wild fishery. So the money goes to look after the New Zealand Council and 12 regional councils. So I think we employ 76 people across the country uh, in 12 regions. And then you've got the head office staff here in the New Zealand Council. And that money is used for rangering um, to manage, monitor and enhance the resource. And each region takes a different approach to that. Uh, what sort of mix they do in terms of monitoring and enhancing. There are a number of hatcheries in the country. When I first started, every couple of weeks I'd find another one. Uh, there are a lot of volunteer hatcheries. They're independent, not they have nothing to do with you guys? No, they're not independent, and they have to ask our permission to do what they do. But they're independent in the, that they are not controlled directly by a fishing game. So, is it for commercial gain? No, it's all basic people who think it's a good thing that what we're going to do is uh, we need to enhance the salmon run, therefore we'll work, we'll set up a volunteer hatchery and then we'll we'll do what we can to enhance, uh, to re- we'll release fry and hopefully we'll enhance the salmon run. Wow, see that would never fly in North America, but it's because our salmon species are indigenous. So what are the indigenous fish here, just like whitebait and galaxia? Yeah, so uh, eels are probably, in terms of biomass, I think you probably have eels would be the, the biggest indigenous fish. Uh, and then there's um, white bait or nanga. And um, there's lots of bullies, bullies and things like that. Right. Now, I know I have you for a very limited time. I'm sitting here in the Fish and Game office, just for people listening, and you have got meetings galore. You are very busy, so I'm just going to cut straight to it and talk to you about the two things I really want to learn more about. So the first one is water quality. When I started fishing here, I heard a lot of complaining about agriculture and how the water quality is really getting beat up because of all the cows. What is the story behind that, and how is Fish and Game involved in improving that? So... Probably towards the end of the 90s, a lot of farmers were looking, uh, sheep and beef farmers weren't making much of a return on their investment, and that's a fair call. Uh, they were looking at 1%, 2 3% return. And then the Dairy Restructuring Act was put in place to actually modernise and make the, the dairy industry more competitive on a worldwide basis. Those two things together created a dairy boom in New Zealand, along with the commodity price for milk solids going up, and which is sent out in milk powder. So what we had was a, an industry that essentially just boomed overnight. 
and you had a lot of investment. I can remember reading some uh, articles by investment magazines calling it white gold. This is the new white gold. And all of that white gold and the whole dairy industry is prefaced on having access to water. When you say white gold, are you talking, or you know, milk powder, are you talking like for the Asians, for example, how they come in and take all the baby formula and yeah. bring it back? Yeah. So Just so people know, I mean, there's like a ban in Sydney, in Australia, there's a ban where people can only buy so many packages of baby powder or, or whatever it's called, formula, because it's getting smuggled out of the country. Well, that's one of the small niche markets which New Zealand has got into in, in some of its um, producers. But by and large, the industry in New Zealand is a commodity play. What they do is they have uh, they produce milk powder and that's sold on a commodity basis throughout the world, primarily to China, but not, not solely. So milk powder takes, uh, well, creating milk takes a lot of dry matter from the farm and to create that dry matter you need a lot of water. So that, that's one thing, you need the irrigation. So if, if you really want to see the impact of intensive dairying in New Zealand, what you do is you go down and look at Canterbury. And at this time of year, you see a bunch, a whole bunch of dried up rivers. And that's because the extraction is so, so considerable. And then the other thing is you have a lot of pollutants produced by the cows uh, in urine and faeces. And that goes and gets washed into waterways, gets into the groundwater. And that's where you have problems with nitrates in water and the coli. And so what we've done in New Zealand is we, for many years, and it wasn't just this, you know, the last Labour government, it was the, sorry, the last national government, it was both the last national and Labour governments. What they did is they took their eye off the ball and they focused on economic development, which is allowing dairying to essentially create an industry that resulted in significant amounts of pollution, but then they weren't covering the costs of the impact of that pollution. And that's what we're seeing now. And um, Fishing Game, under the previous CEO, Bryce Johnson, started a campaign in 2001 called Dirty Dairying. He took a lot of heat from that because uh, people said, oh, you're anti-development and, you know, you're anti-the future. And what, he, and what his um, campaign has proven was that it was exactly correct. All of those fears that were being talked about 17 years ago have absolutely materialised. And we can see that in those areas in the country that have got high dairying. Uh, you can see that in Taranaki, you can see that in um, Canterbury and then in Southland. You know, it's, it's, a, it's one of those, you know, there, it, is, it is an environmental disaster. Do they need to do a lot of irrigation if there's so much rain? Uh, yeah, they do on the east coast of the South Island. You, you need irrigation if you are to ensure grass growth. If you are to just to take the rain as it falls down naturally, you're going to have some dry periods, sure. which means that you're going to have to have supplementary feed brought in or you're going to have to have irrigation. And if you want to come up with a, a very um, profitable business model, you need surety of dry matter growth, and you can only get that with irrigation. So which brings more money into the country, agriculture or, or farming or fishing and tourism via uh, fishing? T- tourism. Really? Uh, yeah, tourism brings in. Uh, tourism is, is booming in New Zealand. It's, it's not a good thing for New Zealand. Uh, we're up to about three and a half million people, visitors now, and they want to get to five million. What about fishing specific, though? Because a lot of people come to hike or, you know, hunt. But what about fishing? Uh, fishing, the economic analysis done on fishing is, is quite old, but it certainly wouldn't be anywhere near the in economic impact of dairying. Okay, interesting. Let's get back to this whole license system because I was stopped yesterday when I was fishing the Wairau, which is a backcountry river, I believe. 
Wairau and the South Island? Yeah, sorry, I was on the South Island. This has been a really long trip. There have been many, many flights. But yes, yesterday we were on the South Island and we were talking about this new backcountry license or it's like a stamp or a tag that came into play a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Backcountry so, endorsement. Mm, the backcountry endorsement. So it's free. Yes. So what's the logic behind that? I'm just, I'm watching, let me just kind of set the stage for you. I think New Zealand is one of the best fisheries in the world. And I'm going to shoot myself in the foot here and say that I think that non-resident licenses are, they could be priced higher, especially now knowing that all of the money goes towards, or that all of your funding comes solely from license sales. When I brought this up and opened this can of worms over dinner, we were talking about how there's talk of making it so that backcountry fisheries need to have, or you need to be accompanied by a guide, which may be taking it too far. What's your, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, the whole issue of what, how you deal with the backcountry fishery is, is a work in progress. Um, you, what you're talking about is the options. At the moment, uh, there is a there is an acknowledgement uh, around the country that the number of non-residents fishing the backcountry is having a negative impact in that it's, it's forcing out the residents. N- North America is well, worse, is well used to this, this debate and argument and they've responded to it, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. This is really a debate that's right, happening right now. And um, the whole idea with the backcountry endorsement was originally to find out of, oh, how many people are fishing the backcountry? And so you want to start from an information basis. So what we said is, well, in order to fish it as a non-resident or a Kiwi, you have to have an endorsement so that we can actually start knowing the numbers. Uh, so that was one of the original ideas. The problem is, if something's free, then people will just click on everything and get a, an endorsement for everything. So you don't actually know if they're fishing them or not. Uh, so the idea was good, uh, probably flawed, really. And so now we're trying to be a little bit more sophisticated and there is work going on to try and establish, you know, where people are and what is our response. So I would say in the next next two years, we're going to have a significant response uh, to the issue of, of non-resident crowding in some of our, 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 our top class premium waters. Um, the, the key thing for me and, you know, sitting across someone who's a non-resident, um, I am absolutely uh, 100% want to make sure that I maintain the fishing experience for Kiwis. You know, I've grown up with it. I think it's our birthright. We've managed it. Uh, And if that means uh, restricting non-residents in certain areas, if that's the outcome, then that would be great. Uh, If it means pricing it higher, that would be great. So there's lots of options, and and I can't actually say which option is the best because we haven't done that work yet it's being done now but what i will say is the outcome will mean a better deal for kiwi anglers are you getting more pressure from the residents are the ang- the angling residents or from the guides because it sounds like you guys are going down the quality waters act that we have with our classified systems in canada so basically non-residents can fish Monday to Friday, but they have to pay per river that they're on. But on weekends, they made it so that non-residents cannot fish on weekends unless they're accompanied by a guide. But the lobbyists were primarily guides, and um, I don't think that the long-term, I don't think it ended up quite like we all hoped it would. Yeah, so one of the, yeah, I've, I'm aware of that, that approach, and um, 
and certainly if, if you're thinking of crowding on a river and giving the river a break, I mean, there's no problem saying one or two days a week, no one can fish the river because, you know, what we want to do is to make sure that the fish get a, you know, have a break and actually maybe not be put into abnormal feeding patterns because they've been hammered day and night. Yeah, they're not migratory. I mean, they're resident fish. Yeah, absolutely. So... In terms of the impact of guides, you know, guides are an important part of the industry. Um, but there's one thing we all have to remember. Guides are making a living out of a public resource. And so while they do a, they do a good, a good uh, they know the river really well and um, most of them are really environmentally focused, we have to be very careful to know that they have a vested interest in the outcome. So while we wouldn't want to do anything that would disadvantage guides' future, they are not our focus. Our focus is the fishery and the Kiwi licence holders, not a guide's business and the guide's future. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, so what is the deal with guides? I've sat down with a few people. Nobody wants to touch it, so I've been waiting to get to you. Uh, The Guides Association. It's very different than what I'm used to in North America. So from what I understand, there's a Guides Association. It's completely independent. Do they pay a fee to the Guides Association? I've got no idea how the Guides Association works. We meet with them. Uh, I assume they they are fee-based. They certainly um, have put the work together in in advocating for a a Guides licence. Uh, how their internal um, payments go and, and, the, and monitoring and regulation, you know, that's something. Uh, but it doesn't come back, no money comes back through Fish and Game? No. So the Guides Association, as far as you know, has, they don't put any money back into, I mean, surely they have to give money back somewhere. Well, they have to buy licences and they ensure that the people that they take guiding have licences. So the Fish and Game get money that way. But... Is the do the guides um, pay a separate amount of money to fishing game for them to do what they do? Uh, at this stage, no. But there is a proposal to have a guides license. I think. Uh, sorry, guides. I did it for ten years. I think that I think if you're making money off the resource, you have to give back. I really do. And do you have to have a guides license here to guide in New Zealand? No. That's what I thought, yeah. So there's no regulation of guides per se. So someone can set themselves up as a guide. Uh, I, I do understand that they, they, have, they have some legal obligations, obviously, in terms of tax and occupational health and safety. Uh, and if they do guiding on the dock estate, they have to um, get a concession. But I think the guides have a blanket concession. So dock gives them a gives the guides association a concession and then when you're a member of of the uh, the association you get covered with that blanket concession 
Wow. Okay. That's so interesting because I totally thought that it was the guides pushing for a lot of these uh, license changes, but it's, it's, you are solely focused on residents of New Zealand. Yeah. So we, we are promoting the guides license to government. Uh, we've, uh, the New Zealand Council has supported them on that and um, for a long time. And so we, we're actually assisting uh, and supporting the legislative changes and regulationary changes that will allow for a guides license to, to come about. So hopefully we can get that nailed in the, in the next 18 months, two years, and then sort of move forward. Uh, but for me, um, the guides licence is one thing, but for me, the management of our sensitive fisheries and our backcountry fisheries um, may be assisted by the guides licence, but the, the reality is that's going to be sorted anyway. Uh, we've got to work with um, DOC, we've got to work with um, the guides to ensure that the outcome for Kiwi anglers is the best as it can be. Do you think that tourists and people like myself are loving this country to death? Yes. Yeah. So can you just explain your thoughts on that? Because it's a really contentious matter when you read about it on the internet, forums, Facebook posts, comments. People get really up in arms about it. Yeah. So it's about the numbers and the resources. Like New Zealand is exceedingly bad about building the capability before we, in order to handle the volume. So what we do is we just open the doors and say, right, go for it. And then we go, geez, we don't have the infrastructure to support that. And what we've got is problems in, in lots of small regional areas uh, with, with sewerage, um, parking, uh, accommodation, and it, and it decreases the value of those places for Kiwis. Uh, many other countries in the world that have high population, high tourist populations have worked out how to deal with this. We're just coming to that now. Um, for example, just about everyone goes down the west coast of the South Island, okay? And, it's, and they should do, because it's beautiful. But the number of tourists that go down the west coast is phenomenal. They stop at... Um, Franz pan- Joseph. Pancake and Rocks, you know, and then they, they whip through, you know, whip through Greymouth, and they go, Franz Joseph, and they, it's, the numbers are phenomenal. Uh, and, I, and it used to be Kaikoura on the other side of the other coast as well. I think there was at one stage 800,000 people going through a town that's of 5,000 people. So you've certainly got to have a different approach to your sewerage system in, oh, or, right. in, in order to handle that. And the roads, the impact on the roads. And while it's great for regional development in terms of money, there is an environmental impact. And it used to be 30 years ago when I'd be going around Lewis and Arthur's Pass and, and fishing and staying in huts, you'd meet tourists and you'd, you'd, have a, you know, you'd share a bottle of wine or a whiskey and you'd have a good time, you'd talk. But now there's just so many tourists. And what you see is it's crowding and you feel crowded. And so the quality of your experience is going down. And there needs to be a understanding of that and we need to manage it. So Tourism New Zealand has, you know, jumped up and down and said, wow, we're going to have 5 million tourists by 2025. I think that's a disaster because that's six years away. And uh, we don't have the infrastructure for the three and a half million tourists we have now, let alone for another 1.5 million. Do you have any pull in these discussions? None. Okay. So, I mean, you have an audience right now. The show has a lot of like-minded, forward-thinking people. If you wanted to ask us to do something right now to help with any problems around here, to not love it to death, would it be to just not come, to stay home? What would your message be to us? Uh, You know... That's a really hard question. Um, what, what I don't want to see happen is 
is for people to start feeling anti-tourist. And that could possibly happen. Um, what I'd suggest is, if you do come to New Zealand, look where most people go and avoid them and go somewhere else. Um, find those areas that people haven't found. Don't travel to the routes with the, you know, the literally hundreds of thousands and millions others that are swept in in buses and, and all, all self-drives. Uh, and just understand that once you start going with the group, you'll be identified with the group. The one thing that really kicked off the whole sort of, hey, something's wrong here, is the freedom campers. So when I was a student, I'd rip up in my car, I'd stay at a lake or a river, I'd sleep in the car or put a tent down in your freedom camp, and there'd be bugger all people around. You know, you made sure that you, you dealt with your waste appropriately, you buried it or whatever. And that's fine when there's one of you, ten of you, maybe a hundred of you. But when there's a thousand of you, you're going to be sure that at least half of them aren't going to do it right. And so... It really struck me, it was a few years ago, I was taking my son and we were fishing down in Lake Hawea, uh, next to Wanaka. And we'd been to this spot before, and I pull up to this spot, get out, and um, all I could see was, in the bushes was toilet paper, and you could smell the human excrement. And I thought, you know, these people are crapping on my country. Uh, and so I, I've got a very strong view that if you come to this country... Freedom camping is wrong. They're not just fishing. These are people just no, no, camping. And Most of them aren't fishing. Hiking. And yeah. But you know what? If you want to stay on a beautiful um, spot for breakfast, you park up by one of our rivers or lakes. You know. So to my mind, we need to have ex- the most highly regulated freedom camping environment. You cannot stay, you cannot freedom camp if you're a non-resident. I believe you should be able to freedom camp if you're a Kiwi. Let's be fair, there aren't that many of us. But if you're a, if you're a, uh, a non-resident, if you're a tourist, freedom camping should only happen in designated areas and there should be set toilet facilities there and you should pay for that privilege. There, there is a view that you, know, you can get in your, your freedom camper and you can whip around the country and you can get by on $10, $15 a day. And... Good luck to you. I mean, we, we did that in Europe. But I, when I travelled Europe and um, when I went to the, the Middle East, you know, as most Kiwis do with their OE, I cannot ever remember in a time where I could sleep wherever I wanted, whenever I wanted. I can remember trying to in Italy and having a policeman sort of tap on my, you know, on my window at about 11 o'clock and saying, tourists can't stay here, you've got to stay in designated areas. That's what we should be doing. Do you have any pull with that? No. No. It's interesting because it seems so accommodating, or Fish and Game seems really accommodating because all of these anglers' access, I've never seen such clearly marked anglers' access. Is that for residents? I mean, residents don't need anglers' access, or is that for people no, uh, like us? Uh, that, that's wrong. Um, when you go to a new area, you want to find out where the anger access is so you can go fishing if, if we want to promote fishing to people and make it as easy as possible you have to show them where to go fishing and you have to do all you can to make them successful but don't you not want to make it that easy for everybody or are you conflicted because you want to make it easy for residents but not so easy for the non-residents yeah so i mean i, I ideally we, we'd like to manage the number of non-residents uh, but we certainly have to make it easy for residents. If Fishing Game is to grow as an organisation, we need to make it 
easy and successful. That's, I'm so ignorant. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I am so ignorant because in my self-righteous ignorance, I assumed that those anglers access points were for non-residents and freedom campers because I thought, oh, well, the non the residents know where to go. They know exactly where to go. Not at all. So if I, look, I'm Wellington-based now. Um, when I first arrived in Wellington in 2000, I had no idea about fishing the, the North Island. So, you know, you look around and you say, oh, well, there's a river there, and then you drive along it looking for the access signs. Or if you're, or you go along to a website and you pick up where the information is and they'll tell you where the access is, and then you try and find the access sign that you've seen on the map. So when you're fishing in another area you haven't been before, you know, access signs are really important. The other thing is access to rivers change. Um, as ownership of uh, access changes and uh, someone may have bought uh, a certain piece of land and they won't want people to cross it and you have to negotiate alternative access. So you've got to be really careful you know, that what the access that you enjoyed for years um, may go. I was just uh, last year down on the Arnold River on the West Coast and I was looking for an access spot that I could remember from 20 years ago that I hadn't been. It was completely gone. Yeah. It's an investment of time to get into those spaces. Uh, absolutely. Did you, when you guys put up Angler's Access and it does go through a farmer's field, does it, that is going through private property, right? Or is it like a weird, is it some sort of area that may be going through a farmer's property and we may have negotiated a specific agreement with that farmer. However, in New Zealand, these things called paper roads. When New Zealand was first settled by Europeans, um, they realised access to waterways was important. So around the country, there's a lot of things called paper roads or unformed roads. And the New Zealand Walking Access Commission has a whole lot of maps on those which you can look at. And so on one part of the, the West Coast is going to a Lake Porirua, there is a, which I've been going to for 30 years. Uh, ownership changed and the previous uh, farmer was fine. He said, oh, you just walk up here and go through. Uh, the new owner didn't want people to access uh, in the same way. And so the access then to the river, or uh, to the lake, was by a paper road, which just happened to cut through the middle of two of his paddocks. So then you can have a conversation and say, look, mate, I can, I can walk that way down. Uh, do you really want me to do that? Or you're okay with me coming down this, this side? And so th there's, there's a lot of access that Kiwis have by right, uh, which is quite different to other parts of the world. Yeah. So are you pro-non-residents or are you anti-non-residents? I don't think you can put it into sort of a polemic like that. Yeah. Um, it's about numbers and it's about what they do and about where they go. So I think there's um, we could distribute the same number or more non-residents over far more uh, waters in this country and no one would ever have a problem. Uh, one of the things New Zealand is really poor at is... It's actually really making the most of our South Island lakes. Um, lake fishing... In I'm so happy you brought that up. Yes, yeah, South Island lake fishing is, um, is fantastic, can yeah. be really fantastic. But it's, it, it's um, apart from trawling, uh, you know, it's, it's not something as, as popular as fishing our rivers. And a lot of those lakes you can... It's almost like fishing the flats. You can wade up to your knees and sight fish to brown trout. Yeah. Can you put some tourism dollars or put some focus on on steering people that way? Yeah, it's one of the things that we've, we've got to, to, to look at. So let's say we want to uh, reduce the number of, of people fishing on, on high country um, streams, some of our classic streams. 
then we've got to open up other areas where they can go. And so it, it's about saying, look, there's other places where you can go that have got great fishing as well. Um, so we've got to provide that information and do that work. But Fishing Game as an organisation is pretty slow to actually respond to, to, to problems that we see because of the structure we have. And um, hopefully we can speed that up and, and have a more sort of um, responsive, modern uh, approach to problems that we face. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv